Well, there was a woman who brought her fiancé home to meet her parents. The father invites the fiancé into his study after dinner, <clears throat> closes the door. So what are your plans? The father asks this young man. The young man says, well, I'm a Bible scholar. The father says, oh, okay, well, that's admirable, but uh, what are you going to do for a home for my daughter to live in? Well, I'm just going to study, and God's going to provide. And how are you going to buy an engagement ring, the father asks. Well, I'm just going to devote myself to the Word of God, and, and God's going to provide. Hmm. What about children when they come along? How are you going to provide for them? Don't worry, sir. God will provide. Well, with every question, this was this man's answer. Later that night, the mother asked the father, so how did it go? The father says, well, he has no job and no plans, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to trust the Lord. In fact, it's essential. Last time we were together, we looked in 1 Peter where the Apostle Peter taught us to cast all our anxieties on the Lord. But trusting God is no excuse for carelessness. It's no excuse for ignorance. It's no excuse for a lack of hard work or getting a job. And we can't be unaware of the realities of the spiritual life. And one of the hardest realities I think that we have to face is what Peter's going to teach us today in 1 Peter 5 about our adversary, the devil. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to look at the last few verses of this great epistle. As we've done each time we've opened this book, we've kind of taken a walk back through the summary of it, and let's do that one more time. Just remembering the flow of Peter's thought as he's writing to people whom he calls aliens and strangers in the world. That's us. That's, that's us Christians. That we live in the world, but as, Peter, as Jesus prayed to the Father, that we would be in the world but not of the world. That we are aliens and strangers. We are people who are sojourning through this life on our way to the ultimate life or eternal life or the quality of life that really is life. And so Peter says over and over and over, and we'll see it again this morning, how essential it is that we have an eternal perspective, that we don't get so focused on what's right in front of us that we forget what's coming. And so he challenges us with, with this eternal perspective to focus on two things that are eternal. First is the Word of God, to make the Word of God a priority in our lives because he says by it you grow in your spiritual life. The Word of God is God's gift to us for us to grow in our walk with, with the Lord. So the Word of God is one and the people of God are, are the other thing. And since we're to live as aliens and strangers in the world, we need to have a behavior in several different arenas or several 
different spheres, you might say. In the public realm, with relation to the government, in the professional realm, you might say, with relationship on the job, in the private realm, in uh, the home, and as we saw last week, he adds another realm to the mix, that is the realm of the church. But what he also mentioned last week at the very end of our time, he taught us that we need to allow God in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. In fact, let's just start there and just kind of pick up where we left off. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Peter wrote, or writes, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Remember we said that Peter wrote this in such a way when he says, therefore humble yourselves, it's in the passive, be humbled, therefore be humbled, allow God to humble you so that he will also exalt you at the proper time. And the way that we do that, the way that we allow ourselves to be humbled is by casting all our anxieties on him who cares for us. In other words, by prayer by casting all our anxieties on him. And so now Peter adds, right along with that, without skipping a beat, we go into verse 8, where he reminds us that prayer is not merely casting our anxiety on, on God, but it also includes something else. Verse 8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, that's not a verse that you read on the, in the Christian bookstore plaques, is it? It's not a verse, honestly, that a lot of Christians even believe, as we'll see. But Peter writes it, and because he writes it, we need to be aware <laughs> that we have an adversary. It's important that we trust the Lord in humility, but part of that trust includes not ignoring reality. We have an enemy. We have an adversary. There is a, there is a realm that is just as real as this physical realm. We're very convinced that the physical things that we can touch are here, but it's really hard to have a great confidence in the things that we can't touch. You know, air is a great, is a great example. Can't see it, but aren't we glad it's there? Our thoughts are another thing. Can't see the thoughts, but we're very convinced of, of their presence. The devil and the spiritual world, angels, the spirit of God, God, we can't see but we believe they're there, very much so. Peter says, be of sober spirit. What does that mean? Uh, look back, he's mentioned this actually a few times in the book, so look back for a second at chapter 1, and let's look at a couple of other places just to get a context of what he's talking about when he says, be of sober mind. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober, literally is what it says, but he means keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So to have a sober mind means you have a clear thinking mind, that you are focused. Prepare your minds, or literally, he says, gird up your minds. Remember we said that that means like a, to gird up your mind just to prepare it for work. We have a phrase when we talk about rolling up our sleeves. It's the same idea. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get your mind ready. Be sober in spirit. Be clear thinking. And in chapter 1, he says the way that you do that is to fix your hope completely. No exceptions. No competitors. Your hope is completely fixed on the coming of Christ. That is what you get up for. That's what you expect. And that's what you live for. Chapter 1, verse 13. Now, the next one, look at chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Notice again, it's an eternal perspective. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So now he adds to it. It's not just a matter of having an eternal perspective, but with that eternal perspective, having a sober mind, pray. And so now when we come to chapter 5, Peter still means the same thing that he meant the other times that he said sober. When he says, be of sober spirit, that means you're keeping an eternal perspective. That means you've got a mind of prayer. In fact, he had just said, cast all your anxieties on the Lord. So it's the same context. Your adversary, he says. Be of sober spirit because of your adversary. Um, for the purpose of prayer, Jesus told Peter and the other apostles, remember when Christ was in Gethsemane, he says, watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. Keep watching and praying, literally, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your adversary. The word here for adversary in the original language is a word that means an opponent uh, in a, in a, like a lawyer that's against you. In, in a court case. You have an opponent. And his goal is that you lose. He is there for business. And he is there to make you lose. That's what the word adversary means. It's like an opponent and a lawsuit. He is against you. The word for devil is the Greek word diabolos. Those of you who speak Spanish know right away, right away that that refers to the devil. And the word in the original language is, particularly in classical Greek, refers to someone who slanders or insults or accuses. It has the idea of uh, hostility. So you have an enemy, you have an adversary that is hostile against you and is accusing you. And notice Peter says, he doesn't just refer to, them, to him as the adversary, but your adversary. You should take that personally. He's not just this nebulous evil force in the world. He is your adversary. You know, we're, we're brought up to, to be taught not to hate. We're brought up and taught not to have any enemies. But here's an exception. It's the only exception. He is against you. His goal is for your destruction. In fact, Peter adds to the, the, ad, the metaphor of an adversary 
mentions him by name, the, the accuser or the devil, and then he gives this gripping metaphor that he prowls around like a roaring lion. The word there for roaring is the roaring of a beast that is hungry. It's not just a loud lion. We're talking a hungry lion. And his goal is to find something to devour or someone here. And the, word, the words that Peter uses here for walking around reminds us of what Satan said in the book of Job. Remember in the book of Job when Satan came for his accountability time with God the Father, and God the Father said, where have you been and what have you been doing? He says, I've been walking around on the earth. Same idea. The, the presence or the domain, as it were, of Satan is the planet that we live on. And he walks around with the intent of finding someone. Your adversary, my adversary, has as his goal to devour. Literally, the Greek says he is continually seeking someone to devour. The word for devour doesn't just mean like to rip apart, like to maim and to leave you there lying in the road ripped in pieces. The word devour means like to swallow whole. It was used, in fact, the same word is used in 1 Corinthians of death. Paul speaks of it and says that death is swallowed up in victory. It's the idea that it's completely consumed. One day death will be completely consumed by the resurrection of Jesus. It's also used the same word in the book of Hebrews for the Egyptians when they were swallowed up by the Red Sea. It means gone. So the idea, Satan's goal for us, to devour us, is not just to cripple us or to, to irritate us. It's to take us out of commission. Not necessarily to kill us, but to, but to take us out of commission so that we are not effective for Jesus Christ. Peter knew what this was like. Peter is writing from personal application and personal experience here. And there's a couple of examples I want to just bring to your mind. Remember when Jesus is about a year before the, Passover, the Passion Week and the Passover, Jesus and the apostles were up at a place called Caesarea Philippi, far north Israel, up in pagan land, and took them to an area where uh, the god Pan was worshipped. So this is outside of all context that's godly. And this is where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some say this, some say that, but Peter steps up to the plate and swings for the fence. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. And then shortly after that, Jesus says, now, let me tell you that the Christ is more than you think. He's not merely going to reign. He's going to die first. Peter goes, whoa, stop, and pulls Jesus off to the side. You know, you don't want to rebuke the Son of God in front of everybody. Bring him off to the side. So brings Jesus off to the side, and the text says that he rebukes him, that Jesus gets rebuked by Peter. And Jesus' response to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Which is a big lesson for us when we think about the rebuke that we are worthy of by the Lord sometimes. When we are so focused on setting our 
attention on God, on man's interest rather than God's. That is from Satan. So Peter knew this. Peter also knew about Satan during the Passion Week. The night before Jesus was crucified, he had his disciples up in the upper room with Peter, and Peter was told, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. Whoa, how'd you like to have Jesus tell you that? <laughs> you want to say, I hope you told him no. <laughs> and of course, we know that Peter indeed did deny the Lord. If you go to uh, Jerusalem, there's a church on the western hill called the Church of St. Peter and Gallicantu. And uh, Gallicantu is a Latin word that means the rooster crows. How would you like a church built to commemorate your greatest failure? Well, this is what happened. It's, it's the weather van on top of the church. It's kind of funny. You got this rooster up top. But just beside the church, there's this wonderful balcony that overlooks where the Hinnom Valley meets the Kidron Valley. It's a great place to stand and just to talk about Peter and compare Peter and Judas, which is a great, um, uh, a great place to do that. Because where Judas hung himself, you can actually see from that balcony the, uh, the, the Hinnom Valley or the area called Akaldema, or the Field of Blood. So it's great to compare Peter and Judas, and both of them failed, and yet Peter moved forward and Judas didn't. Anyway, I'm getting off to uh, an Israel devotion, which is really easy to do. But the point is that there in that church, when you're standing on that balcony, there are homes all around, and one of the homes, and the homes all around that area have roosters. And so you don't even have to, you know, to pay for the special effects when you're standing there talking about Peter's denial. You hear roosters crowing all day long, not just in the morning, all day long they crow. And it's a wonderful reminder, not just of the failure, but also of the grace. Because, of course, Peter was restored, just like each of us, when our roosters crow in our lives. What's the devil looking for when he prowls around? Someone to devour. After Jesus resist, resisted Satan's temptations, you remember what the Gospel of Luke says? That the devil left Jesus until an opportune time. And the next time Jesus addresses the devil, you know, actually addresses him, is when Jesus rebukes Peter. A few years back, George Barnes' team did a survey of Americans who described themselves as Christians. So we can just leave it at that. Whether they were or weren't Christian is not really the point of the survey, but they at least thought they were. And they asked questions that included Satan and demons and a variety of other things, but I found this statistic pretty arresting. About 60% of Christians, or those that call themselves Christians, strongly agreed or somewhat agreed with the statement that Satan, quote, is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. Sixty percent. And eight percent weren't sure what they believe about Satan. Now, a person not believing in Satan 
is really plays right into Satan's desire. Because if you don't know you have an enemy, you're not going to protect yourself against him. The, um, the great um, Keith Green, the old song, uh, Christian songwriter, wrote a song called uh, No One Believes in Me Anymore. And the, the parenthesis is Satan's Boast. And the thought of the song was, Satan's got it easy. He doesn't have to fight any battles because more and more people aren't even believe, don't even believe that he exists. This is why Peter tells us, and wouldn't you love these 60% of Christians to read 1 Peter 5, verse 8? Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is real. And because of man's interests, Peter, uh, Peter was told by Jesus, you, you're not setting your, your mind on God's interests but man's. And that has been a tactic all along of the evil one. It's a tactic he still uses in our lives today. That when we focus on what interests us versus what interests God, then we know the source of that temptation. For man's interests, Eve was deceived to eat the fruit. For man's interests, King David took another man's wife and later pridefully counted his people. In each of these instances, Satan is actually mentioned as part of the, part of the deal. For man's interest, Peter denied Christ. For man's interest, Ananias and Sapphira lied. In fact, Peter was involved in that process, remember, of telling them, why has, why has Satan so filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter learned that lesson because he experienced that same thing as well. And so in the book of Acts, when he spoke to Ananias and Sapphira, he was speaking from personal experience. You see, Satan wants to put us out of commission, but there's a better way. And Peter gives us the alternative or the... Uh, the defense, and that is in verse 9. He says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The command is given, resist him. The original word is a defensive command. It basically refers to standing firm against the offense of somebody else. It doesn't have offense in mind. It has defense in mind. Your stance when it comes to Satan is defensive. Resist him. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that we are to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan. That is really a doctrine that is uh, in error. In fact, turn to 2 Peter, just one book over, 2 Peter chapter 2, and look at something. 2 Peter 2, verse 10. Peter talks about the ungodly. He's referring to the ungodly, and he says in verse 10, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Even holy angels do not rebuke demons or Satan. 
In fact, Jude, which is similar to 2 Peter in this context, Jude says not even Michael the archangel rebuked Satan, but said the Lord rebuke you. So I mention that to say if angels, if like versus like, aren't told to go toe-to-toe or to rebuke Satan, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us to do that. Our stance when it comes to Satan is defensive, not offensive. Resist him, Peter says. And he also says, firm in your faith. This is how you resist. There's a couple of ways. But the first, and back in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, 9, firm in your faith, remembering you are not alone in your struggles. One of the best ways that Satan can get us ready for being devoured is to not keep us firm in our faith, but to be weak in our faith. Now, Think back to the context of 1 Peter. When he talks about us growing in our faith, how does that happen? Through the Bible, through the Word of God. Remember, he said, devote yourself to two things, to the Word of God because it's eternal, to the people of God because they're eternal. And the devotion to the Word of God because it's by it that you grow in respect to salvation. So, stand firm in your faith. And then he also says, by remembering... Or let's just read, read, read what he writes. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now we're back to the people of God. Remembering you're not alone. One of the greatest tactics of Satan in our lives is to make you think, you know what? You're the only one that struggles like this. Everybody else has pretty much got it together. Just look at Facebook. I don't mean Facebook's a tool of the devil. I just mean that we tend to only show that tip of the iceberg that we want people to see. Everybody's got something under the surface of the water. But Satan wants to make you think that the rest of everybody else's lives is just what you see on the surface. It isn't true. It isn't true. All you've got to do is get to know somebody for a little while and you recognize, oh, you're a sinner just like me. The same is true of everybody. And so Peter tells us, look, the same struggles that you are struggling with, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Men, this is why you get involved with a group of other men, so that you can rub elbows against guys that struggle just like you. Ladies, this is why you get involved in small groups or or good close friends where you can say, you know what, here's what I'm struggling with, and be real. Because otherwise you're going to think, nobody struggles like I do. The fact is we do. Everybody does. This is why, and he mentions throughout the world, this is why it's good for us to get these missions updates that Ryan gives us, and that when Barnabas comes, he gets to share. Because we get to hear about what God is doing on the other side of the planet when people are struggling there too. You realize, wait, you mean the church is bigger than Frisco? It really is. God's got his people all over the world. And Peter tells us the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished. That phrase in in the Greek for being accomplished suggests not only something that is happening, but is something that is happening with a purpose toward an end. It's being accomplished 
for something. And what is that purpose? Well, look at verse 10. What a great verse. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you need a verse to memorize that basically summarizes all of 1 Peter, that's it. 1 Peter 5.10. After you have suffered for a little while, there's the eternal perspective we've talked about through the whole book. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory, again, eternal perspective, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Eternal glory in Christ. Remember back in chapter 1 where he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What happens at that moment? We're told in verse 10, Christ himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We're told these four things that the Lord will do. Um, and somewhere I've written the details. Oh, here they are. First of all, perfect. The word means to make something as it should be, to make something as it is proper for it to be, that, that God will perf perfect you to make you as you should be. Second, he will confirm you. It means to make a final decision that will never change. It doesn't mean that he's still figuring out whether or not you're going to go to heaven or not. It's talking about that there is, there is this point of that there's no going back. It's like, it's like the decision that God has made about you is now ultimately shown to its full conclusion. He will confirm. Third, he will strengthen. The word means to cause someone to become more able or more capable in contrast to weakness. Amazing how these words are so rich in their meaning. And finally, he will establish you. It means to cause you to be unchanging, firmly loyal, unswerving. Boy, don't you look forward to that? That the Lord, that the Lord is going to cause us, he's going to establish us, and that we will be firmly loyal to him. We will be unswervingly devoted to him. Could this be true of us any other way of, other than a God of grace? No which is wonderful that he mentions it, the God of all grace will, will accomplish this. And then he, he writes in verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice the perspective again, eternal, forever and ever. The suffering is for a little while, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, I saw a cartoon um, not long ago by Steve Moore. It's called In the Bleachers. You know that cartoon? In the Bleachers. Well, it shows these, it's just one frame, and it shows these five runners. And one guy has just crossed the, the finish line. And uh, so there's, there's the winner, there's first place, second place, all the way down the line. And each of them has a bubble over their head expressing how they're feeling about that moment or what they're thinking. And the guy that just crossed the line he says, life is great. First, first, second place guy says, life is good. Next place, life is okay. 
Next place, life is unfair. Last place, I quit. In fact, he's just standing there. Everybody else is still running, but the guy in last place, he's just given up. You know, if circumstances determine your commitment to run, you'll quit. Because we often see ourselves as that, as that last person. That's why we've got to keep an eternal perspective. And you know, there's been many times in life that all of us have quit. So it's okay. You know, we, we just read through a number of examples where Satan got the better of a number of people, some great people, and yet God's grace was not an exception to them. So it's okay. But if circumstances determine your commitment, it's going to be really easy to toss in the towel. This is why we're told to keep a good perspective. Again, verse 10, if you're looking for a verse to summarize the whole book, that's it. For a believer, Peter tells us, suffering is temporary, but being perfected in glory is forever and ever. So important to remember as you're running that race. Perspective. There was a college student, I love this story. There's a college student uh, daughter, and I can relate to it because we just finished putting two of our daughters through college and grad school for one of them. So the college student who had a couple of problems that most college students have, low grades and no money. So she writes home. Dear mom and dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, he got his divorce. We've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. Well, turn the page on the next page. It says, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But it is true that I got a C in French and flunked math, and it is true that I'm going to need some money for tuition this fall. <laughs> Love your daughter. Isn't that a great letter? You see, even bad news can sound like good news when it's in the right context, when it's in the right perspective. This is why Peter writes the book of 1 Peter, to say the bad news that we are so consumed with. If you put it in the right context, it's not that big a deal. It really isn't. Because after you have suffered for a little while, and that's really all it is, think about how fast life has gone. Think about how fast it will go. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen you, and establish you. I love that. Well, Peter finishes his book with a few closing comments here, verses 12 to the end. He says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ.
Silvanus, he says, helped him write it. He says, through Silvanus I have written to you. Silvanus was probably the, uh, the scribe or the, the amensuensis, amenuensis or something like that. The, the guy that wrote it down for him. <laughs> the scribe. And Peter grabs, his, grabs the pen and, and writes these final verses with his own hand. It's interesting, uh, I think we're going to look at Second Peter next time around. I'm still praying and chewing on what's coming next, but I think we're just going to go right on into Second Peter. And we'll talk about it then, but Second Peter, uh, the Greek there is much rougher. And you can really see, even though Peter, the Spirit of God worked through Peter in both letters, that Sylvanus, you know, made it a little, made it a little smoother and easier. Second Peter is rough. You can tell a fisherman's knobby hands wrote that book. But through Sylvanus, he says, I've written to you briefly. And then, and then again, he, he reminds us at the end of verse 12, stand firm, just like he said in verse 9. Stand firm in your faith. Verse 12, he says it again, stand firm in it. And then he says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings. It's not real clear if he means literal Babylon, which would, would mean that he's referring to someone there who sends greetings, which might be a little odd, or if he's referring to Babylon as Rome, sort of like the book of Revelation does, whether kind of a metaphorical, you know, I'm going to say Babylon, but we all know I'm talking about Rome. So it's not clear. But what is clear when he says is, my son Mark also sends greetings. What a great thing to include. Because you remember Mark, who, is, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, who is John Mark in the book of Acts, was an individual who failed, just like Peter. And Peter clearly took Mark under his wing, calls him his son, meaning his spiritual son, and nursed him back along to where eventually the Apostle Paul would say that Mark is useful, whereas before Paul was like, you know what, we're done. We're done with the guy that can't keep up. Uh, I love that Peter brought him along, and it's probably because of Peter's failure that Peter did it. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This is going to be our application today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Doug Williams looked at me like, no. <laughs> it's not something we do, is it? This is, a, this is a cultural thing that's, uh, it, it was probably restricted to the same sex, where, so there would be nothing inappropriate uh, or temptation about it. But uh, even in Europe today, you know, they still do this, and not necessarily in church, but uh, I remember one time I was at a missionary church in Russia, or did a mission in Russia, and this, this man with his big old wide face and beard, you know, coming out to here is coming up to me to kiss me. It's like, whoa, let's... <laughs> How about we just give a holy handshake here, or a holy hug, but he, no, I got the holy kiss, right? Dead on, so. Anyway, sometimes it's good that we have cultural shifts in biblical application. So I'm having fun with you, but peace to you, he says, peace be to all of you who are in Christ. You know, every Christmas we talk about how peace on earth and the goodwill to men. But, but notice that the angel, when he said to the shepherds, uh, on whom his favor rests. Peace to you who are in Christ. You know, it's possible that you're here today and you've come for a long time and you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ. The one who came not only to be born in a manger and to live a life as an example to us, but to lay down his life. 
because in order to stand before God who is holy, we ourselves have to be absolutely holy, and none of us are. But the good news is that Jesus paid for our sins when he died on the cross. And beyond that, he says, all you have to do is believe it. Just have faith in me that I've paid for your sins, and your sins are forgiven. And for those of us who have believed that message by God's grace, let's just take a good reminder of of this great verse 10 once again. And let me read it to you, and then let's bow in prayer. Peter writes, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Our Father, we look forward to that. We believe it. We believe the same Bible that talks about heaven also talks about hell. The same Bible that talks about the holy angels also talks about Satan. And so we want to apply this text as Peter's written it and help us, Lord, to stand firm when that roaring lion comes our way that we would stand firm and that we would have a defense that rests in the truth of what we believe about Scripture and also knowing that we are not alone in the world as we struggle, that every other Christian is dealing with what we're dealing with too. And remind us in the midst of the struggle, our Father, that we would walk before you in faithfulness and that we would keep a perspective that is eternal and that we would look forward to what this glorious verse 10 says, these promises, that you will perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us when our Lord Jesus Christ comes once again to get us. We look forward to that day. Thank you for this great book, First Peter. Thank you for our brother Peter having the humility and the obedience to, uh, to accept your grace, to keep going, to not quit when he failed, and to write this book and to live the life that he did that's a model for us. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.